as you know, we have been focusing on putting your Bible together, learning your Bible. This year we have dedicated ourselves to really learning and getting an understanding of the Scriptures. And in all the different aspects, we've now, last week, we had an introduction to the New Testament. We have come through, book by book, the Old Testament, and we have laid all that material out to the place where uh, you ought to have now a very understandable knowledge of the Old Testament books one by one, something that next time you read through your Bible, you can, you can understand where we're at and, and what you're dealing with. We're now going to enter into the New Testament, and I told you last week in the introduction of the New Testament how the New Testament basically builds on what God has already done in the Old Testament. And we're going to start with the book of Matthew today. The book of Matthew is a book that portrays Christ, as we said last week, as the King of the Jews. And remember, the four Gospels give you four distinct pictures of the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And last week we saw the intro into the New Testament, and I went through basically the ground rules. I showed you the danger areas in the New Testament, the books you've got to watch out for. We talked about how that all the Bible is written for you, but not all the Bible is written to you. One of the things you've got to ask yourself is, who's he writing this to? Does it have a direct relationship to me or an indirect relationship to me? And we're going to see some of that today, because certainly in the book of Matthew, that's exactly what we have. And uh, the book of Matthew, as we've already said, deals with the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see in Matthew the fulfillment of many of the Old Testament promises that were given to the nation of Israel when God met with Abraham all the way back there in the, uh, uh, in the, uh, uh, in the Old Testament. You know there are some pivotal points in the Bible. When I say pivotal, I mean pivotal in the sense that God changes things so dramatically that it changes the whole course of history. And there's about four or five pivotal places in the Word of God. And certainly Genesis chapter 15, where God meets with Abraham, is a pivotal passage. Because something changes there. Where up to this point, God had given the kingdom of heaven and the establishment of that literal visible kingdom to Israel and the forefathers of Israel, even though we're nowhere near yet where Moses is going to lead them out, God is establishing and formulating that kingdom. But up to this point with Abraham, everything was conditional. And that's why you find that when the devil comes into those men's lives, Noah, Jacob, uh, right on down the line, and uh, you find that where they begin to, uh, or not Jacob, but Noah and the, and the early men, you begin to find that when the devil shows up, he nails them, and down they go, and they lose that concept of the kingdom through sin. But when it comes to Abraham, something is different. God gives the promises to Abraham unconditionally. And here's what he says. He says, I'm not going to take it away from anybody from this point on that falls into sin. I will judge the nation, I will judge their family, and I will judge them. But the promises to Israel from this point on are going to be unconditional. And from that point on in Genesis chapter 15, we see just that. When you get into Matthew chapter 1, 2, 3, right on through the book, you begin to see the fulfillment of those unconditional promises that God gave to Abraham at that great pivotal point in the Bible all the way back in Genesis chapter 15. I showed you last week how that you have four Gospels. Each Gospel gives you a different picture of the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
I also told you that in the book of Revelation, because the greatest one word about the Bible is the word consistency. And I showed you how that the Bible is consistent. And in the consistency of the Scriptures, you're going to find, just as God gave you four accounts of the first coming of Christ, God gives you four accounts of the second coming of Christ from Revelation chapter 4 right on through uh, to the end of the book of the Revelation. And uh, again, the word that you want to remember when it comes to the Word of God is the word consistency. That's one of the greatest teachers of the Word of God. Let me show you what I mean. The consistency between what Matthew teaches about the first coming of Christ and what the Bible teaches about the second coming of Christ can only be explained in the understanding of the preserving hand of God in the Word of God and its inspiration to us. Because when you find when Christ comes in Matthew at the first coming, you'll find that Israel is captive. You'll also find that when Christ comes the second time in the book of Revelation, Israel is a captive nation. You'll find in Matthew when Christ comes the first time, Rome is the world ruler. And you'll find when Christ comes the second time in the book of Revelation that again Rome will be the ruled ruler. You'll find in Matthew when Christ comes the first time that the Jews are in the homeland of Palestine. And uh, they were sent there, by the way, by a nation by the name of Persia. You'll find at the second coming of Christ in the book of Revelation, you'll find that Israel are, is again in the nation, uh, back in the land of Palestine, and they're put there by a nation that mirrors on the other side of Calvary uh, what Persia does, and that is England. All the consistencies are, are too much to, uh, to put to chance. You'll find when Christ comes at the first time in Matthew, the Jews are in deep apostasy. When Christ comes the second time, again, they're in deep apostasy. When Christ comes the first time, you'll find that Moses and Elijah show up as the forerunners. And from Revelation chapter 11, we find that when Christ comes the second time, Moses and Elijah will show up as the forerunner. You'll find that at the first coming of Christ, there's one universal language that all the world speaks. And you'll find that when Christ comes the second time, uh, there's one universal language that all the world speaks. You'll find when Christ comes the first time that they're under Roman military dictatorship, the Iron Heel of Rome. And you'll find when Christ comes at a second time that Israel is under the military dictatorship of the Roman Empire. The first time, how did He come? The first time Christ came at the first coming of Christ, He came privately to His family. Remember the story of the manger? And then later, at the public ministry, He displayed Himself to the whole nation of Israel. At the second coming of Christ, He does the same thing. He reveals Himself first privately to His family, the body of Christ. It's called the rapture. And then at a period later, He reveals Himself again to the nation of Israel and to the whole world. You can't beat the consistency of the Word of God. That is the one thing that will teach you more about the Bible than anything else that I know. And the book of Matthew is the first book in your New Testament, uh, as your New Testament lays out, because it sets the theme for the other three books uh, in, of the four Gospels series. And it lays out and gives you all the things that you need to know about the first coming of Christ and the theme of the Bible. And that is the establishment of the kingdom of heaven. Now you remember as we came through early on in our study, I laid out for you the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of heaven. But to refresh your memory in a short little history lesson here, you remember how this thing works. The kingdom of heaven is the literal visible reign that deals with the nation of Israel. That's the easiest way to remember it. The kingdom of God is the spiritual kingdom by which you and I are born into uh, the moment we trust Jesus Christ as our own personal Savior. 
And you'll find that when Adam shows up, the Bible says that Adam is the king over both kingdoms. He is made in the spiritual image of God, therefore he's a part of the kingdom of God, and yet he's given the literal promises that are going to be filled for Israel, therefore he has the literal promises of the kingdom of heaven. You know that in the garden, the devil gets them to sin. And the Bible says that when he sins, he loses the spiritual image of God, and the image of God goes out, and along with it goes the spiritual kingdom of God. From Genesis chapter 3 to the first coming of Christ, there is no kingdom of God on planet earth. Nobody is born again. Nobody is born in the image of God. Everybody is born in the image of Adam. And right on down we go to the first coming of Christ. Ah, at the first coming of Christ, we find the Lord Jesus Christ who is called the second Adam showing up. And when the second Adam shows up, he again brings with him both kingdoms. He brings the literal, visible kingdom to the nation of Israel. That's why John the Baptist runs around and says, Behold, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But he also brings in with him, because he is made in the image of God, the spiritual kingdom. That's why you'll find there are places in the gospel where one place that says kingdom of heaven, the other place that says the kingdom of God. The great Bible scholars of the world run together, and because they don't understand the consistency of the Bible, they say, see there, they're the same. No, they're not the same. Well, how do you know that? Well, first of all, they're not spelled the same. That would be your first clue. <laughs> but second of all, through the Bible, you'll find that those two kingdoms are either here together, one is gone, the other one is here, they're both back, and then it goes from there. So at the first coming of Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, the second Adam, who brings the literal kingdom to Israel and brings the spiritual kingdom because he is the Son of God, they show up again. What happens? This time, Israel rejects the literal kingdom. We're going to see it in a little bit. And out goes the kingdom of heaven. Then we enter into what we talked about last week, the transitional period that brings us from the Old Testament to the New Testament, from the nation of Israel to the church, the transition from the kingdom of heaven to the spiritual kingdom of God. Now... The time that we live right now, from that point, right up to the rapture of the church, you and I aren't going to anybody preaching about a coming literal kingdom, other than through prophecy. What we are doing is we are winning men and women to Christ and bringing them into a spiritual kingdom. Romans chapter 14 verse 7 says, the kingdom of God is within you. And it, Jeff, when you got saved last Thursday night, you know what we did? We didn't bring you into a literal kingdom. We got, you got born again into a spiritual kingdom. That's what happened to you, Steve. That's what happened to you, Amy. You got born into a spiritual kingdom. It lives within inside you. The literal kingdom is going to Israel. The spiritual kingdom is for you and for me that once Adam lost that image... You and I got it back in Christ, and now that's why the Bible says we are the sons of God, spiritually. That's you and me. So be it. That's you and me. So when you look at this thing and you understand it, that's how this kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven thing works out. Now let me give you an outline for Matthew, and this will really help you. I like books like this because they're so easy. Matthew is the first book that you find because it lays out all the material that you need to know to put the other books together. And it shows you that the focal point of the first coming of Christ is the establishment with the nation of Israel, that kingdom. And it's so vital for you and I to understand that. Uh, it, it's a great book. So here's the outline. Chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. Then chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, right up through 28, all built around two chapters in the middle, 11 and 12. 
Everything from chapter 1 through chapter 10 brings you up to a point. Something changes in chapter 11 and chapter 12, and then 13, 14 to the end of the book take you away from the thing, and it changes completely. And the whole book is laid out just like that. The pivotal chapters are going to be chapter 11 and 12, and I'm going to go through them here in just a second, and I'm going to show you how they are. But when you think of Matthew, that's how you think. You think when you find a book that has a pivotal chapter in it, a chapter that changes things right on the spot. When you see that chapter, he's going to be a preacher just like you, John. You might as well just get used to it. Let me hear an amen, little guy. Okay, no amen. Maybe he's going to be a better preacher than you, John. I'm just kidding. John, when you want to be, a, I want my boys to be better preachers. When you want to be better preachers, get your wife straightened out over here. Anyway, you'll find that this is a great book because it lays out that basic material that we have to have and understand. The book of Matthew is a pivotal, uh, is a pivotal book. Within the, within the middle of that book, two chapters pivot the thing, and it, it, it shows you a change. And books in the Bible that are pivotal books are easy to understand, but that's how you remember them. Don't ever forget... Whatever you get into in Matthew, because Matthew can look complicated, but not when you look at it through the two pivotal chapters. Everything on one side of those chapters means one thing. Everything on the other side of those chapters means something else. And we're going to see what those things are in just a moment. Now, in Matthew chapter 1, let's break it down chapter by chapter. In Matthew chapter 1, you have the genealogy of the king of Israel. Now, this is very important. Very important that you understand how Matthew lay starts out. Because the first genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ is found in Matthew chapter 1 verse 1 and runs down through the chapter. And you'll find that it deals with the line of Christ through the kings of Israel. And this is very important because he has to be in this kingly line to be the king of the Jews. But there's some problems with it and we need to see this thing how it lays out. Now, in Matthew chapter 1 verse 1, you have this phrase. This phrase is only found two times in your Bible. Once in Matthew chapter 1 verse 1, and again you'll find it in Genesis chapter 5 verse 1. And the phrase is, the book of the generations. The book of the generations. In Matthew chapter 1 verse 1, it'll be the book of the generations of Jesus Christ. In Genesis chapter 5 verse 1, it'll be the book of the generations of Adam. And you'll find that that is the only two places in your Bible where you find that phrase, the book of the generations. Ah, one of them deals with the first Adam, one of them deals with the second Adam. Ah, but to the student who pays attention in the Word of God, to the student of the Word of God who's looking for those little things, you'll find that there's a slight difference between the two. When you come down to Genesis chapter 1 verse, uh, Matthew chapter 1 verse 1, it says the genealogy of Jesus Christ and then goes down through that genealogy of the king. When you come through to Adam uh, back in Genesis chapter 5 verse 1, and it says the book of the generations and it starts to come through Adam, you're going to find a phrase. In every generation, you're going to find this phrase. And it says this, and he died, and he died, and he died. 
over and over and over through Genesis chapter 5, verses 1, when he starts to talk about the generation of Adam, it says, and he died, and he died, and he died. When you come over to Genesis, uh, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, in the genealogy of Jesus Christ, in the book of that generation, you don't find the phrase, and he died. You know why? Because one of them represents the sinfulness of the second Adam, uh, first Adam, and the other one represents the life of the second Adam. In the first Adam, all men die. In the second Adam, all men are made alive in Christ Jesus. And you find that phrase absent, and he died, out of Matthew chapter 1. Because you're dealing with a line that represents life versus a line that represents death. But in Matthew chapter 1, you'll find, uh, all the way down through here, you'll find that we're bringing the kingly line through the line of Abraham. It starts with Abraham, runs up through 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings, right up through 1st, 2nd Chronicles, right up through the captivity. The little captivity's a little shadowy because you don't have all of the things there, but he brings you through. And it's the royal line of the king. And it's a, it shows you that Christ is in the line of David. It shows you that Christ is in the kingly line. But there's a problem here. And the problem is, according to Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 28... Christ can't have an earthly father. Because back there in Jeremiah chapter 22, there was a curse put on the line. And he says there that no man will prosper on the throne anymore uh, coming through that literal kingly line. So when you get over to Luke chapter 3 and you find the bloodline of Christ, here you find the king's line, but we got a problem because the Bible says that no man can have an earthly father that will sit on that earthly throne that God will recommend anymore or God will accept because of Israel's sin. So we got to get a man who is a human man, but a man that doesn't have a human father. So when you come to Luke chapter 3, you find the bloodline of Christ. And the bloodline doesn't come through Joseph, it comes through Mary. Mary and Joseph were cousins. And God protects the line, protects the scriptures, gives you the kingly line in Matthew chapter 1, but shows you the bloodline that does not violate Jeremiah chapter 22. And Matthew chapter 21 is the genealogy of the king of the nation of Israel. In my mind, there's so much in there that we could get into. I've just got to kind of give you an overview of it so you can know what to look for when you're reading it. Then we get into chapter 2. <clears throat> and chapter 2 deals with the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. What a great study. number of things here uh, to see. And uh, the first thing I want you to note is in Matthew chapter 2, uh, you'll find that uh, this is not exactly lines up with what is commonly called the Christmas story. I know that many times, you know, you see the Christmas cards that you get that have the star of Bethlehem over the manger and the three wise men showing up at the manger and all that stuff, you know. And, and uh, that might be nice for Christmas, but like most stuff uh, God's people get into, it isn't too biblical. Uh, when you come down here in chapter 2, you'll find in verse 11, when the wise men show up, they're not coming to a manger, they're coming to a house. In verse 9, they're not coming to a babe, they're coming to a young child. And again in verse 21, they're coming to a young child. In fact, uh, when Herod comes in on the scene here, he uh, inquires of the wise men all of this material, and he decides to have all the kill children killed two years and down. Because there's a time element here that uh, this isn't the same uh, time element as found in his birth in Luke, where he's in a manger, where he's uh, a baby. This is some time after, maybe a year, maybe two years after that period of time. And this is where he's in a house. This is where he's not a baby. He's a young child. And uh, all of the things that you see there that go along with that 
uh, showing you that you've got to rightly divide the Scriptures and understand what you have. Now, does that mean you don't buy Christmas cards that's got the Star of Bethlehem and the wise guys at the manger scene? No. It just means you better be smarter than the people that send them to you. That's all. You need to understand what the Scriptures say. It's what I said before. You know what? <clears throat> I really don't care what a person believes about the Bible. I really don't. You can come up with me and say, well, I believe this and I believe that. I don't care. But you better be able to open the Scriptures and show me how you came to that conclusion. Don't you tell me what you believe you just got because you read somebody somewhere or you've heard this all your life. You better be able to open up the Word of God and understand why you believe what we believe. If there's any problem I have with God's people today in this church period we live in, it's the fact that they buy stuff that people say without ever investigating it in the Scriptures themselves. Don't you ever take anything I say without going to the Scriptures and keeping me honest in it because I am not your final authority. That book is your final authority. And uh, when I teach it to you, I try to stay as straight and clean. If it's in the book, I teach it and believe it. If it's not, I don't. But I make mistakes just like anybody else. And, you know, you need to keep me honest just like I keep you honest. Now let's talk about the issue of the wise men. This is a great too. Notice the Bible says they come from the east. They probably come from Babylon. And the reason why I say that is because they're coming to see the birth of the king. They're coming at a time when they are looking for Jesus. Now, I know that, you know, many, many people have probably wondered in their minds and hearts how all this thing goes together. Well, here's what you got. When Daniel was in Babylon, he wrote the book of Daniel. And the book of Daniel is the greatest book the world has ever seen, uh, certainly the greatest book in the Word of God, canon of Scripture, that lays out for you and for me the, sec the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. You have everything in Daniel to find out where Christ, when Christ was going to be born, to about maybe six months to a year period there. These wise men coming from the east, somewhere around Babylon, obviously have the book of Daniel. From Daniel chapter 9, they knew the time period from the beginning of the decree for the Jews to go back, and that's a fixed date in history, they would know that, they would know the, the 70th, 70 weeks prophecy and they would be able to figure the birth of Christ from Genesis. They would know that he was associated with a star from Isaiah. They would know it's from Babylon or from Bethlehem. They would have put the whole thing together. And so when they're coming, when they're coming to, the, uh, to Christ uh, in Matthew chapter 2, they are coming not because they just saw some angel crazy someplace one time that told them to go. They have been studying the scriptures. Now, let me just drop this on you. They're studying the Scriptures. What a great analogy that is, because it shows you and I that Babylon is a type of the world. And these men, even though they were in the world system of Babylon, because they had a book that told them when Christ was coming, they went to meet Him. And at the second coming of Christ, don't forget the word consistency, in this world of Babylon with all of its filth, you have a book that tells you about the second coming of Christ, and you better have been on your way to meet him. It's the same concept all the way through it. And Daniel chapter 9 is a great chapter that lays out the, within six months or maybe even a year uh, when, when and where he would be born at the first coming of Christ. And wise men with the word of God will always find it out when Herod and all the rest just kind of wonder around what's going on. Then you have the three gifts that they bring. We can't pass this up. You have gold, frankincense, and mirth. 
three things that the wise men bring him, and they represent the three offices that the Lord Jesus Christ has. The gold represents the fact that he's king. The frankincense represents the fact that he's a priest. And the mirth represents the fact that he is a prophet. So there's three offices that Christ has. No other man in the Bible has those offices other than the man David in the Old Testament. David is a priest, David is a prophet, and David is a king. There's no other man. This is why Saul got in trouble. Saul was a, Saul was a prophet and Saul was a king, but he was not a priest. And when he offered the sacrifice, he broke that, and that's why God wound up killing him. The only other people in all the world that held all three offices are you and me. If you're saved here this morning because you have been born again into that spiritual kingdom, you are a king, you are a priest, and you are a prophet. And that's how it lays itself out. Then we have another little thing in here that, that uh, bears mentioning, and we don't have time to get into it this morning, but my, my, we could take a long time and lay it out. And that's this star of wonder, star of bright, the star of Bethlehem. Oh, my goodness, how many times and every time Christmas comes around, everybody gets on the bandwagon about the star of Bethlehem. Uh, the unsaved scientists, they want to explain it away. God's people, they don't know what to do with it. And uh, everything but just believe what the Word of God says. And uh, I don't know how many times I've sat down and heard uh, some uh, halfway uh, Christian or unsaved man get up or woman get up and talk about the star of Bethlehem as it relates to history in the Bible. And uh, when you come away with it, you've got to get the, get the idea that these people just can't stand to believe that God could do something supernaturally. They got to explain it away because it just could not be uh, something supernatural. Well, the Bible takes it one step farther than that if you're a Bible believer. And, uh, and uh, yet scientists will tell you that in the year Christ was born, which they think he was born in 3 B.C., that there was an actual conjunction between the planets Venus and Jupiter. In fact, it happened an unprecedented three times that year. So they say that these wise men... Uh, the Bible calls them wise men. The scholars today want you to believe that they were stupid and didn't understand. I mean, if they were wise men, you think they'd know the difference between Saturn or Jupiter and Venus? Certainly they would. Why, the greatest astronomers in the world were the Babylonians. What are you trying to sell me anyhow? They had it figured out long before, you know, anybody else had it figured out. And their, their, their kingdom goes all the way back to Genesis. Why, the constellations and the very planets and the stories of the mythology that goes along with them were put together by the Babylonians. They knew the difference between uh, uh, Venus and Jupiter. But, of course, uh, you're given the impression that these poor wise guys really weren't wise. They were just kind of stumbling along, saw something they didn't understand, and, uh, you know, scholarship will figure it out for them. Let me tell you something. It wasn't, there may have been a conjunction between Jupiter and Venus. Three times, four times, five times. Maybe it happened every hour on the hour. I don't know. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about something that is supernatural. We're talking about something that the whole world didn't see. Herod didn't see it. It doesn't seem like anybody saw it except the wise men. And that star was leading them. And that star is connected with a prophecy in Genesis that there was a star connected with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you can debate the stars all you want, and that doesn't bother me any, but I know this, I know my Bible. I know that in the Bible, angels are called stars. You find that in Revelation chapter 1, you find that in Revelation chapter 9, Revelation chapter 12, a half a dozen other places in the Bible. And I know how that thing works. I mean, the Bible says in Revelation chapter 9, verse 1, I saw a star fall from heaven, and unto him was given the key to the bottomless pit. That star is a him. So you got a good chance that that star over there was an angel bringing those people down through there and showing them and leading them to where the Christ child was. And somebody said, well, I don't know if I buy it or not. I don't care if you buy it or not. 
I don't bother me at all. I know what the Bible says, and I know how to lay those things out. And here's the bottom line. I mean, uh, you can't get away from the Word of God. I told somebody this week when we were talking about the Bible, and we asked somebody, we were talking about something, I said, you know what? <clears throat> in the Bible, angels are stars. You know how it's consistent the Scripture is? I mean, uh, stars. Now, in our world, in our country, we have stars. We call them movie stars. And movie stars all live one place. They live out in Hollywood. And you know where the Hollywood stars live? They live in Hollywood. You know where Hollywood's at? Hollywood is in Los Angeles. You know what Los Angeles means? City of the angels. You can't get around the Word of God. Angels in the Bible are stars. And Gen- uh, Matthew chapter 2 is a layout of the wise men who have the truth of the Word of God coming to them and being led by some supernatural power that brings them to where Jesus is, exactly like you and I are doing it in 2005 A.D., where we have an absolute infallible Word, the Holy Spirit of God that is a what? Shining light and a light unto my feet and a light unto my path, guiding me to the second coming of Christ. It's hard to get around unless you're educated. But anyway, Matthew chapter 3. In Matthew chapter 3, we have the heralding of the king. And here we have the ministry of John the Baptist. John's the forerunner of Christ. He comes six months ahead of him to announce to Israel that their king has come. With John the Baptist coming to Israel, we see the biblical definition of what baptism is, uh, as the Bible has defined it. And, of course, we find it in, in John chapter 1, verse 31, which is the same story as here. And we find in John chapter 1, verse 31, that baptism manifests something. It manifests something. And for us, it's a, it manifests what God has done in our own life. But baptism always manifests. The Bible says that when Christ came to Israel, He came to manifest Himself to the nation of Israel. And that's why John baptizes Him, because Israel was told to look for that. They're told to look for John as the forerunner, and they understand what's going on, even though the scribes and the Pharisees didn't do it. And when Christ shows up, He shows up to get baptized at the River Jordan. That's no accident. I told you the key word is consistency. Jesus Christ gets baptized on the exact same spot that Joshua crossed back in the book of Joshua. You go up there in Matthew chapter 3, verse 9, you'll find him make a reference to the stones. Those are the stones that, that Joshua put on the, in the Jordan as he crossed over. You'll find that the point that they crossed over in Joshua is the same point that Christ is baptized at. It's the same point he'll cross in Zechariah chapter 14 when he crosses Jordan on his way up the King's Highway when he comes to the Mount of Olives at the second coming of Christ. And uh, it's all consistent as you find it right there in the Scripture. Remember last week I gave you Matthew chapter 21, verses 33 down through there, and I told you how that that was a picture of the whole concept of the Bible in Israel, and we started with that last week. Remember I told you how that there was a time when Israel's the bare fruit, and the prophets came to say, where's your fruit? Look at verse 8 of Matthew chapter 1. Here it is. John says, where's your fruit? Where's your fruit? All right, chapter 4. Chapter 4 records the preparation of the king. Now we see the king being prepared uh, by his temptation in the wilderness. Now there's a reason for Christ's temptation. And uh, the reason is found in Hebrews chapter 2 and uh, verses 16 through 18 and Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15. And those reasons are that he as the Messiah had to be tempted on all points like we are yet without sin. So the temptation of the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 4 is a record of Him being like man, tempted like man, yet sinless as the Son of God. And you'll find that when the devil comes to Him, He comes to Him and He tempts Him three ways. He tries to get Him to turn the stone to be made bread. 
Uh, he says, cast thyself down and God will send the angels down to catch you so you don't dash your foot. And then he says, bow down and he says, worship me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. Two great concepts here. Two great concepts. <clears throat> and uh, this is a great study on how that you see how that this thing isn't written directly to you, but indirectly there's great New Testament concepts that you can apply to your life. Now, when you read this story here of the <clears throat> temptation of Christ, it's not written directly to you. It's talking about and recording Him coming to the nation of Israel, but there's some great principles here for you and for me. First of all, the first principle, it shows you how that the devil operates. All of these things, these three things, are all things that Christ is going to do at or about the second coming of Christ. They're not just frivolous things that the devil thought, well, what can I get him to do? What hoops can I get him to jump through? No, 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 no. These are three specific things that will take place at the second coming of Christ, which are prophesied. They're all connected with prophecy to the second coming of Christ. The devil's idea is to try to get him to break the Scriptures. If the devil could have got Christ to do, listen to me now, the right thing at the wrong time, the Scriptures would have been broken. That sets for me a great personal, spiritual concept of my life that I have to watch very carefully. There's a lot of good things that I can do that I can do them at the wrong time. Timing is everything when it comes to the child of God. And timing is depend on your leadership of the Holy Spirit of God in your life. Doing the right, right thing at the wrong time is just bad as doing, the, doing it the opposite. You've got to have the leading of the Holy Spirit of God in life that He is telling you, showing you through the principles of the Word of God, how and when to do what God wants you to do. We've got too many of God's people today that just act in their emotional flesh. They see something that's good, they see something that's right, and therefore without any biblical principles infusing it into their lives at all, they launch into it and then wonder why it turns out to be a disaster. We have to live on basis on biblical principles. Everything in that Bible is a principle in some form or the other. That's why we're to study it. That's why we're to read it. That's why we are to hide it in our heart. That's why we are to learn it. Because it makes the base operation for everything that we do on life on planet Earth. When a circumstance comes into your life, when a situation comes into your life, you don't react to it. You respond to it. And when you respond to it, you take the principles of the Word of God and says, this is how the Word of God dictates I deal with this circumstance. And that is the way you do it. The second great thing is every time the devil comes to him, Jesus' answer is the same. And he says, it is written. Now, we all get attacked by the devil, or maybe not the devil, maybe, uh, you know, as the, one of the great military commanders said one time, we have met the enemy and he is us. We are our own worst enemy. And many times, uh, the devil doesn't have to attack us personally. Uh, he just pushes the right buttons and we do our own stupid things. But the bottom line is this. There's a way around that. And the way around that is found in the model of when Christ gets tempted by the devil. The first thing that we saw is the devil's going to try to get you to do the right thing at the wrong time. Second thing we see is that when the devil shows up, he tries to get him. And the way that the Lord Jesus Christ defends himself is by simply saying, it is written. In other words, and this is a great lesson. And if you don't get anything else out of what I say this morning, get this. The Word of God and the principles of the Word of God are the key of the devil not having the advantage in your life. That's why everything I do, I try to get, and I know you get sick of it. I get sick of it. 
But it's something that I have to keep saying, and I will say till Jesus comes back, is that's why you have got to learn the Bible from the Bible principles. You have got to learn to raise your family, you work your life, work ministry, work whatever, not by your emotion, not by your feelings, not what you think works or doesn't work, not what your homespun grandma theology has been or your mother passed on to you or whatever. You have to do it based on the clear principles of the Word of God. And when the devil came to him, and tried to get him to do something, Jesus didn't argue with him. He didn't go into a great theological discussion with him. He just clearly said, it is written. Because the devil has no recourse to the Scriptures. That's why he hates the Bible. That's why he spent the last 2,000 years changing the Bible. That it doesn't say what it used to say anymore. That's why he's gotten rid of the words of the blood. That's why he's gotten rid of the things that deal with the deity of Christ. That's why you can go now in the great verses that used to tell you how to stand for God. Don't give any assimilation of standing for God anymore. You know why? Because the devil knows the power of the word of God in a common man's hand will keep that man from falling into temptation or that woman. He knows that. He understands what we don't understand. That we are not to give any place to the devil. And place to the devil in your life and my life is simply based on what the Word of God says and the distance between what it says and how long it takes you to do it. And that's called latitude. Christ didn't give the devil any latitude. He comes the first time and he says, it is written. Second time, it is written. Third time, it is written. Finally, the devil said, I can't get anywhere with him. All he does is talk about the Bible and off he goes. Because the devil cannot exist in your life and my life one inch around what is written. And when you base your life, your family, your children, your own personal life, your ministry, every concept of everything that you do is based on that book, the Word of God and the principles in that book, then you got it. And you're not going to get messed up too far in life. Two great concepts. Then we move on to chapter 5, 6, and 7. And in chapter 5 and 6 and 7, we have what is commonly called the constitution of the, of the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven. He lays down the structure by which the constitution of the millennial reign of Christ, the literal visible reign uh, to the nation of Israel, is going to operate. Now let me just say this, and I, I, I must just take a minute with this, and some of these I want to make more reference to than others because of their obvious importance. But we've got a problem in our world today, and the problem has been around for a long time. And it's a problem which we commonly call the social gospel. We find it in every avenue. There isn't an event that I, that I don't watch on television that deals with religion that the social gospel isn't up one side and down the other. The social gospel focuses on the fact that we're all God's children. And it takes the theme of the brotherhood of man and the fatherhood of God. That because we're all God's children, that makes every man brothers. And uh, because we're brothers, we need to get along. And because we're all God's children, and it brings in this nice social concept that we exist on planet earth, not by the absolute principles of God, but by the niceties of the, of the social aspect. And that's why everything in organized religion today goes toward the social aspect. And you see it in every aspect of, of Christianity. With those organizations and that kind of mindset, you'll find the teaching, as we've defined before, of amillennialism and postmillennialism. If you know your Bible, you know that we are pre-millennialists. 
You know that, and I know that Christ is going to come back and He's going to whip this world before He takes the throne in Jerusalem. And somebody said, well, why couldn't it be amillennial or postmillennial? Well, I'll tell you why. You know what happened to Christ the first time He came? He came down with authority. He came down with His Word. He came down with His plan. And the whole world killed Him. What makes you think that it would be any different this time? If Christ would have showed up, and I'm not being mean-spirited, you don't have a problem with me, make an appointment. I'll help you work it through it. If Christ would have showed up last week, you think he would have went to the Pope's deal? You think he would have given the reverence or all that hollabaloo that went on over there any kind of importance? What would he have done? Here's the whole world thinks this. And boy, let me tell you something. For you people that are into Bible prophecy, if there was ever a doubt that the Roman Catholic Church isn't the reading religion in the world that the whole world looking for, last week was a great wake-up call for you. But you know what? They would do the same thing to him the second time they did the first time. Why? Because they hate God and the Word of God more now. Everybody's got their concept. And in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, this is where you find the base text for the social gospel. Now, here's how it works. The men that believe the social gospel do not believe that Jesus Christ is coming back. They have no concept of what we teach and what we know and believe as the millennial reign of Christ. They don't have any concept of the Word of God nor the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of heaven. They have no concept. So when they come down through this great chapter here in the book of Matthew 5, 6, and 7 and they see all these little, what we commonly call the Beatitudes. You know, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed is they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. <clears throat> blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. This is commonly called the social gospel. That if you, they have no recognition. In fact, everybody that teaches the social gospel conspect thinks that God's all finished with the nation of Israel. And that uh, they've taken the place of Israel. When in truth the reality is, this is a Jewish-Israeli constitution of the millennial reign of Christ and how God, the whole chapter. Why, it's in this chapter that if, if you want to take this, you better take it all. Because it's a little bit farther down, the Bible says that if you call some man a fool, you're in danger of going to hell. It's a, it's a millennial constitution of the literal kingdom to Israel. But when you take it and you make it the social gospel, then here's what you do. They take blessed is the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. So they get this nice concept of God as a marshmallow. Yesterday I, by no plan design, I watched the marriage of Prince Charles and whoever it is this time. And I like those things only because I like to watch the religious pomp and circumstance. To me, it's an edge, because I know the Church of England, and I like to learn things like that. And I, I, the whole thing was worth it, because I got one line. I got one line. And this line says exactly what I'm trying to say today. This guy stood up here, this Archbishop of Canterbury, and that's a long line going back, which is an interesting study in itself. He gets up there before the whole assembled world, he says this. And this is what it means. He says, I apologize, I can't do it in the flowing, melodious voice that he did it in. And I know my voice, compared to his, sounds like a broken axle with a wheel dragging on the ground, but you'll just have to bear with me. He says, God is love. Those that dwell in love, dwell in God. And the love of God 
dwells in them that love God. And I thought to myself, that's about as spiritual and deep and meaningful as a note to Santa Claus by Martin Luther King in 4004 B.C. It means absolutely nothing. And yet it sounds like it means everything. God is love. Those that dwell in love dwell in God. So love everybody. And when he says love everybody, he's talking about the gays, he's talking about the liberal, he's talking about everybody in the whole world because God is love. And so when they say blessed is the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of God, if you keep that nice loving attitude, here's what happens. In that mindset, sin ceases to exist. Nobody's a sinner anymore. Now you've got a sickness. Nobody lies anymore. Now it's you're in denial. Man the sinner gets replaced with man the victim. When they say, blessed is they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. There's no hell. There's no heaven. There's no sin. There's no judgment. And we all walk around trying to do the great things that Jesus would do if he was on this earth. Free the oppressed. Free the oppressed. Take the people from the nations in bondage. And the greatest thing that Pope Paul II did was he, he loved and he freed the, the, the men in bondage. Not the bondage of sin. Sin doesn't exist anymore. No, no, no. We freed them from the bondage of tyrannical governments. We liberated them through all kinds of religious, social, gospel programs. And then when we liberated them, when we fed them and clothed them, and we liberated and did all these great things, they died and went to hell like a bullet. You know why? That's not the gospel. That's the social gospel. So when they say, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall uh, be called the children of God. Then we got everybody that runs around bringing peace, being a child of God. That's why every time something happens, Jesse Jackson shows up. The Reverend Jesse Jackson shows up. And wants to bring peace. Why? Because the Bible says if you do the gospel, you bring peace. You're a child of God. That's the mindset. That's why the National Council of Churches does all the things that they do. That's why the Roman Catholic Church in El Salvador uh, supported and, and uh, Archbishop Romero, the guy that was assassinated in the capital of San Salvador while he was given mass. He brought forth back in the 70s and the 80s the theology of revolution. And it was if your country was oppressive, since Jesus was a revolutionary, overthrow the government and take charge because of the fact, free the oppressed. That's where it comes from. That's why the Roman Catholic Church has killed God's people all down through history, gave medals and awards for it because they were purging this world of heretics. And it's, it's, that's why we have no capital punishment today. Peacemakers, the tree huggers out there, you know, hey, hey, save the world. Let, the, let all the men and women die and go to hell, but save the whales, save the birds, save the, everything else. We're so busy. You know what? I firmly believe. I was driving down to, what in the world? Now, I know, what in the world are we doing running a flag at half mast for somebody that isn't even American? No, I'm going to tell you something. I understand the world doing it. I drove by Baptist churches this weekend that had the flag at half, and the Christian flag, whatever that is, at half mask along with the American flag. 
I am firmly convinced in my mind that the only thing that is keeping the body of Christ from lining up with the Antichrist when he comes is the rapture. I think we'd buy right into it so fast we'd all want to be driving his car and be his chauffeur. Because we have bought into it there and it's, it's so clear. He says, blessed are I'm sorry. I, I'm trying to get into chapter 8. I am. <laughs> blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now that indication is that if you're a God's man, you've got a handshake like a dead fish. And you're all wimpy. And you walk around, you know, and you always kind of walk around and you're real quiet. And when you see a preacher, he's a little mealy-mouthed guy over here. That when he gets into the pulpit, he doesn't want to offend anybody. He ain't going to preach on all the issues. He's going he's to all take the, take the way where it's just going to be, you know, the meek is going to inherit the earth. So if you preach like me, that ain't meek. You want to inherit the earth, you got to be up here like a dead mackerel, you know. Well, bless you children. Yes, thank you for coming today. Let us all, let's all celebrate. They celebrate everything today. We celebrate life, we celebrate death, we celebrate Jesus, we celebrate death. I mean, everything. Everything's a celebration. I'm not kidding you. You know, this, it, the whole problem, we got to the place where we, we want to help everybody, you know. We're in everything. And so we, we, we. We, we, we try to say, everybody involved. I've seen churches that say, we accept everybody. We don't care if you're gay. We don't care if you're a lesbian. We don't care whatever your sin is. There's no sin anymore. Everybody's accepted. And while the world comes to the place where the world is infected with HIV positive, let me tell you something. God's people in the churches are infected. They're NIV positive. And it's destroyed the truth. Destroyed the principles. We don't know what we're standing for anymore. Because the social gospel has taken over. We've lost our perspective of the nation of Israel. We've lost our perspective of everything. And now we're just doing our own thing. I'm telling you something. The reason why it says these things, because when Christ comes back in Revelation chapter 19, verse 11, it's going to be, the Bible says, an iron rule reign. There ain't going to be any paying off the judge. The little guy's not going to be on him, and the big guy's not going to be on the top anymore. Everything is going to be done right. And the first time somebody steps out of line, it's going to be dealt with with this book. And the world doesn't like it. That's why they got rid of it now. That's why they can't even conceive of it being there. That's why everybody's making it up, and the social gospel is, whatever you want it to be, let's just all get along. We're all God's children. We're all the family of God. No, we're not. Our Bible says there's two families in this world. One of them God's and one of them's the devil's. And when you're born into the world the first time, you're born into a sin of Adam's race, which needs the Redeemer. And that's why God came down and died, because we need to be saved and born again and washed in the blood. That's the only way you get out of sin. You're not a victim. We're sinners. We have to take our own responsibility for what we do. Then we get into Matthew chapter 8 and 9, and what does he do there? He presents his Old Testament credentials as proof to the nation of Israel of who he is. We find that this is where he begins to do the signs and the wonders. And off we go into the great charismatic gibbly-glop of Michael Jackson's Neverland that never returned from. And yet the Bible is so clear about these sign gifts. This Bible talks in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1, that there are certain signs that an apostle has. And there are signs, the gifts that Israel is told to look forward to. 
I don't know if you know it or not, the first case of healing in your Bible is all the way back to Exodus chapter 4, where Moses is told to put his hand in his bosom, and he brings it out in his leprous, and he puts it back in, and he brings it out, and it's clean again. You know what God tells him? He says, Moses, it's signs like this that I'm going to deal with the nation of Israel. Why, Israel's told in Isaiah chapter 28, verse 11, to look for tongues. They're never given to the church. Healing was never given to the church. Somebody asked me this week, they called me on the phone and they said, Hey, Bob, I'm studying back here in uh, Philippians someplace. Why is it that the Bible says it made such an emphasis that, that Paul left the guy sick? What's the emphasis on that? I said, the emphasis is Paul, the greatest hero in the world, didn't have the power to heal anymore. It's a temporary gift given to the nation of Israel because they're told to look for signs. And so when he presents his Old Testament credentials as proof to Israel of who he is, he does it with signs and wonders. That's why 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22 says the Jews require a sign. That's why 1 Corinthians 14, 22 says tongues are for a sign. And that's why in Mark chapter 16, verse 16, you have them all listed and it says they preach the word of God with signs following, confirming the word. To who? The nation of Israel. And people just can't get it. They all understand that the sign gifts are given to Israel. And yet I find a great truth in here in chapter 8 that I think is worth noting. I find there's two ways that Christ healed. In verses 14 through 15, he heals Peter's mother by touching her. In verses 5 through 8 of chapter 8, he heals the centurion uh, servant, and he speaks only the word in verse 8, and it's done. You know what that shows me? That shows me that the person of Christ physically and the word of God spiritually are one and the same. He can do it by touching or he can do it by word. There's no difference between Jesus Christ and the Word of God. The Word of God is the incarnate, written Word of God. Christ is the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Christ. No difference between the two. Unless you got the wrong Bible. Chapter 10, sending out of the 12. Oh, here's a good one. These, 10 go, these 12 go out to preach the kingdom of heaven. One of the greatest places in the Bible shows you and defines what the kingdom of heaven is, uh, is right here in these upcoming chapters. And you see that the nation of Israel, uh, these 12 apostles are told to go to the nation of Israel in verses 5, 6, and 7. They're not to go to the Gentiles, no church yet, no gospel, no salvation in the sense of New Testament, no coming Holy Spirit of God, no body of Christ. They go to the lost sheep of Israel. They're not to go to the Gentiles, there's no church yet involved. And they are to go out and use the sign gifts that they were given in the chapter before in verse 8 to show Israel that the Messiah and the sign gifts are here and He is legit because of the sign gifts. Oh, but you want to, don't want to miss this. Chapter 10, verse 4, He sends the 12 out. Judas goes with them. Judas is the devil. Bible says over there in the Gospel of John, Jesus himself, so you wouldn't mess it up. Have I not chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil? Look at old Judas, lost as a goose, out there healing the sick and raising the dead just like everybody else. Don't tell me all this stuff and healing today has to be because God. The devil heals too. You better get in your Bible and quit reading some of the stuff you're reading. This is an incredible chapter that shows you the sending out of the twelve to Israel, and in the midst of it, one of them is a phony, and he's doing it just like the rest. You know, I've never understood the concept of faith healing. If you really got it, don't put you a tent down there. Head down to the Children's Mercy Hospital. How much do you think those people would pay to have the little kids healed of cancer, if, if money's your deal? What do you got to get a tent and get up there and waste all that sweat and energy for? 
Why do you got to come up with some people and get all these people to come down and, and, you know, take their crutches and all set up and all this stuff and the guy with the plastic gorder, you know, that you touch it, lets the air out and the hand it goes down, you know. Why do you got to mess with that? That's a lot of energy, a lot of sweat, a lot of work. And look at the money you can save on the tent. Just go down to Children's Mercy, walk through the cancer ward, and come out with all the money you need. Just go to the grave, go, go to the cemetery, go to the, go to the, uh, go to the funeral home. I mean, uh, every day, I look at the metropolitan thing, I look to see who died. The older I get, the more that makes it important to me. <laughs> and I don't ever open it up. I don't see how these people died. And I say, you know what? If everybody on there would just give $1,000 to have that person brought back to life, Faith Healer could be the richest guy in the world. He wouldn't have to buy a tent. He wouldn't need a bus. You know why they don't do those things? Just think about it and guess. Don't give me this stuff. Well, you know what? It didn't work because you didn't have faith. Well, Jesus healed dead people. How much faith can a dead man have? Huh? 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 See, years ago, I took the Vulcan mind melt, and my brain expanded. (laughs) Now we count the chapter 11 and 12. Oh, the great pivotal chapter. Because in Matthew, in Matthew chapter 11 and 12, we see the rejection of the king and the kingdom. This is vital. Don't forget everything else I've said up to this point, but focus on this now because this is what you want to get. In chapter 11 and 12, we find the great two pivotal chapters. Here's what happens. We find all the way up through Matthew. We've seen it. We've seen in Matthew chapter 1 where the, the Messiah, the kingly line has been laid out. The Messiah has come. He's, he's identified himself as the son of David. He's proved himself with the signs and wonders. He's manifested himself to the nation of Israel. He's done the healing and the signs and all the things that Israel supposed to total look for. Now what happens? The scribes and the Pharisees in chapter 11 and 12 do this. They tell the people that the, the spirit by which Jesus does these miracles is the spirit of the devil. They call it Beelzebub. Beelzebub means Lord of the Flies, which is a great insight into studying demon activity and how one man can have, or one woman can have, 15,000 demons in them. There's a great key in there in Beelzebub. Lord of the flies. But he says the spirit by which Christ does these miracles in chapter 12 verse 24 is by the spirit of Beelzebub. And what they're saying is they're saying that Christ is doing these miracles not by the power of God but by the power of the devil. And in Matthew chapter 11 and 12, they make Israel, makes their official rejection of the Jewish Messiah and the Jewish literal kingdom of heaven. And at that point, by saying that the power and the spirit by which Christ does what he does, he has, does it by the spirit of the devil, this is what has been commonly called down through the the uninformed as the great unpardonable sin. This is what has been called by many as, you know, the speaking a word against the Holy Ghost is unpardonable. And they try to make it into some kind of church age doctrine that there's some sin you can do that is unpardonable and the Holy Spirit of God will never forgive you for it. Hey, the only sin that you can commit that the Holy Spirit of God will never forgive you for is the sin of rejecting the Holy Spirit of God when He taps you on the shoulder. Because as long as you're unsaved, He cannot forgive you. That's Israel's issue here. Christ has come, he's laid out his contentions, he's done everything that he has been told to do, and he has manifested himself in every way to Israel, and the religious leaders now say the spirit 
by which he does these miracles is the spirit of the devil. And at that point, Matthew chapter 13 through Matthew chapter 25, everything changes. Where chapter 1 through chapter 10 was everything building up to the kingdom. After 11 and 12, the two pivotal chapters, everything from this point on takes away from the kingdom. Because now the rest of the book of Matthew <clears throat> breaks down in what we call the parables. And in chapter 13, verse 10, <clears throat> he begins to talk in parables. And the apostles say in verse 10, <clears throat> Why speakest unto you and us in parables? And he runs them back to Isaiah chapter 6, Acts chapter 28, and tells them the reason why now the kingdom of heaven has went into a parabolic or a parable form that nobody can understand is because of Israel's hardness of their heart and rejection of the Holy Spirit of God and the Son of God. And from this point on, the kingdom is no longer <clears throat> understandable unless you have the Bible and understand the parables. Up to this point, the first 10 chapters, it's pretty easy to read. Follow the event. Boy, from Matthew chapter 13 on, now you've got <clears throat> 12 parables. 12 of them. 12 of them. About the kingdom of heaven. You've got a parable in Matthew chapter 13, verse 3, which is the parable of the sower. You've got one in Matthew 13, 24, which is the tares and the wheat. You've got one in 13, 31, which is the mustard seed. Which you got one in 1333, which is the leaven. You got one in 1344, which is the treasure in a field. You got one in 1345, which is the goodly pearls. You got one in 1347, which is the parable of the net. You got one in 1823, which is the parable of the talons. You got one in 20, verse 1, which is the householder. You got one in 22, 1, which is the guest. You got one in 25, 1, which is the one on the virgins, 10 virgins. And then you got one in Matthew chapter 25, verse 14, which is the parable of the goods. Twelve parables on the kingdom of heaven. Each one matches up to the twelve tribes of the nation of Israel because of their rejection. It goes into twelve parables. Somebody said, oh, Bob, I got you. I counted them up. There's 13. Well, you can count. I'll say that for you. There is 13. But the real student of the Word of God the real student of the Word of God that pays attention to the small detail will find that 12 of them all talk about the kingdom of heaven. And then the one that we talked about uh, before in Matthew chapter 21, verse 33, which is a parable, but there's no mention of the kingdom of heaven. You know why that is? I'll tell you why that is. What's the key word of the Bible, ladies and gentlemen? Consistency. You know why you've got 12 parables on the kingdom of heaven and in one parable that doesn't say the kingdom of heaven? It's because you've got 12 apostles with the kingdom of heaven and you've got the 13th apostle, which is the apostle Paul, and he ain't about the kingdom of heaven. He's about the kingdom of God. That's why. That's why. That's why. Bible's consistent. And that parable I gave you in Matthew 21, verse 33, is a parable not on the kingdom of heaven. That's a parable of what God is doing throughout the whole Bible, and that'll match up to Paul for you. Well... Chapter 26 then, once we get through the terrible parables. Matthew chapter 26, set the scene for the crucifixion. In verse 7, you have the woman uh, that, uh, the, that anoints his head with the alabaster box. You have the betrayal by Judas. You have the Last Supper, verse 26 through 35. You have his agony in the garden, in verse 36 through 46. Great study on the humanity and the deity side of Christ. Great study. We'll have to get into these more when we get into the other books here, which really focus on them. We see in chapter, uh, uh, chapter uh, 57, you go before Caiaphas, the high priest. 
And we see again in chapter uh, 69 through 75 where Peter denies him. And that great story. Oh my, what a story that is. All of those things are breaking down that chapter. Then you get into chapter 27. And chapter 78 deals with the crucifixion of Christ itself. It shows in verse 1 that he's taken before Pilate. The great story in verse 26 of, of Barabbas. And oh, what a great story that is of the substitution for uh, one man for another. My, my, my. Uh, then we see in verse 25 where they make the famous statement that haunts the nation of Israel even to this day. And that is, His blood be upon us and our people and we have no king but Caesar. And then you find in uh, verses 28 through 66 where they crucify Him and He dies on the cross. And all the great study of taking all of those accounts together, looking at Him dying from the sixth to the ninth hour, and then realizing that, uh, or the agony from the sixth to the ninth hour, and then realizing that uh, the great story of the crucifixion is not found in Matthew, Mark, or Luke, and John. That's just a skeleton outline. We'll get into it come Thursday night when we start to look at all the in-depth stuff. But the real thoughts of the cross, of Christ and the cross, are found in the Old Testament. Almost in a place that you can follow it hour by hour, minute by minute, from the time they take Him to the judgment hall till they put the nails and nails in His feet, till He says, My God, my God, why has Thou forsaken me? Till He says, Father, into my hands I commend my spirit. And He dies. Incredible study. Then chapter 28. <clears throat> wow. Want something to clap about? Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28, resurrection, our victory, our victory, our victory in Christ. You know what? <clears throat> long as he, <clears throat> long as he was dead, <clears throat> deviled one. I went to an old <clears throat> black church years ago, and I love black Christians, man. I'll tell you what, I just, I think they got a sensitivity for God that most American, most white people don't have. And I know they can be screwed up sometime on doctrine, you know, and all that. But you find one that loves God and loves the Word of God and got it straight in the book. You've got somebody that's got a great relationship with God. And I remember one time years ago, I won an old blackboard of the Lord when I was working at the Hoover Company. And uh, I drive a fork truck, and so was he. And I won him to Christ, and i never forget. I've been witnessing to him, you know, and he, uh, he didn't want to hear it, you know. And I kept preaching to him and witnessing to him. His name was John Tony. And uh, I got witness at old John, and one day we, I was working on a Saturday, and uh, I saw old John's truck come barreling down the, down the hall, highway, and I was back in the storage area, you know, just kind of taking a break, and he slammed on the brakes of that fork truck, jumped off that truck, come over and pull me out of that truck, big old tears running down his face, and asked me to show him how to be saved, and he'd been under conviction, and he said, I need to be saved, and I want to be saved, and I won that boy to Christ there in that storage area, and I taught him the Bible, and every, 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 uh, you know, I had a helper then. I was all by myself up to that point. God gave me a partner. And every morning before we went to work, we'd stand out there by the fork trucks and we'd put our arms around each other. We'd pray to God, give us the victory. And, and, uh, and we just try to do a, well, old Tony, old John got called to preach. Last I heard of him, <coughs> he's preaching a black church in Alliance, Ohio. And he had me down there to preach before I came to Kansas City. And uh, <coughs> I'd been down to... <coughs> I've been down to preach there before, you know, and he wanted me there for the whole day. And, you know, I preached in the morning and then he preached at night and we had a great time together. And he preached the message on, on the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ. And old John Tony, you had to see him and understand him. I mean, he was a black guy of the first order. I mean, he talked like a black guy, he had the manner of a black guy, and he was a great preacher. Uh, and he's down there and he's preaching. He's preaching on a resurrection. And I never forget it. I was sitting down front. And he said, he says, well, you know what? He says, when they crucified my Jesus on that cross, he died for you and for me. He says, but it, and all the black people are going, I love it. They go, we say amen. They go, well. 
I like that. They go, well, you know. They say something, well, you know. And they about welled me up the well, man. I'll tell you in the morning. And old John down there, he prayed, and he said, and my, my Jesus died on the cross. He prayed, say, Father God. Oh, he, and he said it in such a way that it was just, it was like a little three-year-old, you know. Talking. And he said, well, my Jesus was on that cross. He said, he died. But he says, his death on the cross didn't do anything for me. He said, when he died, he said, the devil had the keys of death and hell. He had that ability to, you know, keep down, you know, the hell. You know, I, you know, great, man. I mean, he had me wishing the next three weeks I would have been born black. I mean, he really could put it together, man. And he's up there, he's like, my Jesus died on the cross. He came down and he said, he, he died down there. And he, and he, but that didn't save my soul. He said, because the devil had the keys of death and hell. And the devil put him down in that deep, dark pit called death. And he said, the devil came over and he got the death angel. And he said to the death angel, we've won. And he said, when Jesus gave up the ghost and his spirit and his soul came down to Abraham's bosom, he said, all the hordes of hell cheered because of the fact that God was dead and they had him in hell. The devil comes over to the big old death angel and he looks at him and he says, death, you make sure he doesn't come out of that tomb. You hold him down. Death said, he ain't going nowhere. I got him. He said, I, he said, don't you? He said, never in all the years have I lost a one. He ain't going nowhere. Old John could preach, boy. And I'm not doing it anywhere as good as he did it, but he did doing it, man. And he said, in the second day, devil came around. And he said, death, you still got him down there. And death said, I got him. He ain't going nowhere. I got my foot on him and he ain't going nowhere. He said, don't you let him go. And the devil turned around to the hordes of hell and he said, he's still dead. And all the hordes of hell screamed and yelled and cheered for the devil had won. And old John Tony said, third day, old devil came down and said, death. Death didn't answer. He said, death. Death didn't answer. He said, death. Do you still got him down there, death? He looks out and he says, and death said, mm, mm, something done gone wrong down here. <laughs> yeah, you betcha, something done gone wrong down there. He came out. Right. And because he's out, there's our victory. There's my triumph. That's why it doesn't matter what I go through in life. The ups and the downs. I've won the battle in Christ Jesus if you're saved today. There is the great chapter 28. The great resurrection of my Jesus. And the establishment of the coming out of that tomb as the time when the key came out with the keys of death and hell. And from that point on, the devil's defeated and he knows it. Oh, I'm telling you, Matthew is a great book. It's a book that begins and shows you from chapter 1, every chapter, how Christ is revealed to the nation of Israel. And then in chapter 11 and 12, Israel's official rejection by equating the Spirit of God with the Spirit of the devil. And in every chapter thereafter, dealing with the rejection of the nation of Israel. 
dealing with the rejection uh, that, that, that God turns that kingdom, that literal visible kingdom to Israel because now he's, he's moving and he's going in a direction. And they crucify my Savior. They put him on a cross. And they put him in a tomb. But oh, chapter 28. Mm-hmm, something done gone wrong. He comes out. And when he's out, up from the grave he arose in a mighty triumph over his foes. And he's got the keys of death and hell. And now we're Adam's line. And he died. We're always made death in Adam. Now all are made alive in Christ Jesus. He's the first man to die that'll never die again. That's why he's called the first begotten of the dead. And when you and I got saved, when you guys got saved last week, sweetheart, when you got saved the other week, when you became a new creature in Christ Jesus and alive forevermore because of what he did, we begin to see the transition as it works through. But oh, Matthew, you should have it now. This Thursday night, when we begin to focus on putting it together, we're going to begin to see how you take this stuff and how you put it in a fashion that it's at your fingertips and you never forget it again. Never forget it again. Oh, the majesty of this book. I'll tell you what, I don't care how social the world goes. I don't care till Jesus comes back by the grace of God. I'm going to stand and preach this old book just like it had been preached by my forefathers right back where they first called Christians in Antioch. This is the book. It's the only thing that makes this world understandable. And I'm telling you, if you want to figure it out, get in the book. It's as simple as that. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for